So our guest speaker today is Andrew Arthur, and he started the church plant of the Hallows Church in Seattle. And um, Andrew first came to the Pacific Northwest several years ago through different missions opportunities, preaching opportunities. And I heard a rumor that one of those was being camp pastor at Centrifuge. Is that right? Yeah, our group knows Centrifuge really well. We just got back a couple weeks ago. So he's pretty cool. We know that already. Um, on a serious note, um, before or after his time in the Northwest, um, he got his master's degree in theology and then a Ph.D. from the New Orleans uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. And um, after that, was a campus minister with his wife um, at the University of Tulane. And um, that area is very educated, very diverse, very artistic, and very secular. Does that sound like any area of the country that you have heard of before? Okay, so you, maybe you see where this is going. Um, so um, in that context, they started feeling a calling on their heart that they should be planting a church in that kind of a culture. And things started kind of happening from there, as I understand it. Um, Andrew joined the staff at the Church of Brook Hills as church planter in residence. And then from there, the doors were open for them to come to Seattle and plant the church, the Hallows, in Seattle. Did they get all that right? All right. Well, come on up here. We want to pray for you before you get started. Um, and my question is just how can we pray for you and your church? Um, endurance. Uh, morale. Uh, that hearts would be lifted. And, and um, the people who are running with us right now, that they'd be encouraged and that they would press on through whatever opposition or resistance they may be facing right now as they... Uh, participate in a rather difficult, I mean, you guys have been down that road. Church planting's hard, and uh, our people are learning that more and more each day. A uh, very rewarding journey, but it's also a very difficult journey, so you could pray for our endurance, for our morale, all those things. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you that Andrew is here today to just bring your word to us, God, and um, I just lift up him in the Hallows Church right now, and um, just as he said, I pray for endurance for him, for his family, for the people who are starting this church, reaching people in Seattle who we all know so desperately need to hear about you guys. And um, I pray that, that you would just do mighty things and that that would be the inspiration that propels them forward, God, just to see you be so holy and so powerful and so at work in our area, God. Um, I also pray just for Andrew right now as he's going to speak to us. I pray that you just anoint him and speak through him and that he would just bring your truth, God, to us. And I pray for us that we would just have hearts that um, are ready to listen. It's not a regular pastor, but I pray that we would still be just, just eager to hear what you have to say for, to us from him. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Apparently my daughter does not like to hear me preach, and so she's, uh, she's a little upset. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for uh, your prayers. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege it is to join you this morning. Um, super encouraged to be here with you. I love to see and to meet other believers, other churches in the greater Seattle area. And um, yeah, it's just an encouragement to my heart. So thank you for letting me join you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you could take them out, turn with me to First Peter chapter 1. I'm learning more and more uh, along this journey of planting the Hallows Church how much I do not know. And so, you know, when, you, when you're preparing to plant a church, you're looking at a lot of strategies, you're talking to a lot of minds, you're gleaning wisdom from people with all kinds of experience, people uh, encouraging you to do certain things, to be an effective church planter, uh, certain strategies, certain skills, certain talents that you need, and, and there's a lot of emphasis on those kinds of things. But 
Over the past year, as I've tried to do those kinds of things, as I've tried to leverage skills and talents and resources towards the planting of the Hallows Church, I'll be honest with you. The people we come in contact with in Fremont, in the Fremont, Wallingford, Queen Anne, Ballard neighborhoods of Seattle, their greatest need isn't necessarily my skills. Their greatest need isn't necessarily my talents. Their greatest need isn't necessarily the resources of the people who are helping us plant the Hallows Church. Their greatest need is my and my people's personal holiness. A guy by the name of Robert Murray McChain put it this way, a Scottish pastor. He was mentoring other pastors and he told them, he said, look, your, your people's greatest need is, is your own personal holiness holiness. And to be honest with you, I think the greatest need of this culture, the greatest need of this world, the greatest need of the nations is the holiness of God's people. It is the people of God who have come to believe in the gospel of God, being transformed by that gospel, living such distinct and holy lives that leave an impression, leave an impact. Our people's greatest need is our own personal holiness. And so I want to talk to you this morning about that pursuit. And I want to talk to you about that from 1 Peter chapter 1, which is mainly the, the, the predominant theme of this passage we're going to look at in verse 13. As Peter takes up the topic of holiness and he impresses upon his readers the significance and the value and get this, even the beauty and the excitement of pursuing a life of holiness. Now, I know that may seem counterintuitive. You know, you hear the word holiness come out of my mouth and, and you're tempted to disengage and think, oh, great, here's a stuffy, moralistic sermon on how we should act and the things we should do and the things we shouldn't do. But uh, hang in there because that's not necessarily the direction I'll be going in. First Peter chapter one. This is what Peter says in verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God. And God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now, again, I know that whenever I say that word holiness, you're tempted to disengage or tempted to just kind of step back. And, and perhaps that's due to some crazy images that you have associated with the term holiness. So let me begin by kind of disarming you and assuring you about what I mean holiness, what I mean by holiness. And to start do that, what I mean holiness is not. You see, holiness, when we talk about being God's people, pursuing holiness, being holy as God is holy, we're not talking about retreating from the world. 
To be holy does not mean that you and I just unplug from all technology and that we retreat from the cities and we move out into the mountains. We, we're disciples. We're not monks, right? And so retreating from the world is not necessarily the way to pursue holiness. So we do not define it that way. Our biggest problem ultimately is not the world we live in. It's not everything that surrounds us. Our deepest problem is what's indwelling within us. It's the sin within. It's not necessarily the world without. So you and I can retreat from the world. We can unplug. We can disengage. We can flee to the mountains. But we cannot get away from ourselves. So our biggest problem isn't the world. Our biggest problem is the sin within. So holiness can't be thought of as retreating from the world. But at the same time, holiness is not about looking a certain way. It's not about playing a part. There are a lot of politicians who look holy, right? They have nice haircuts, big smiles, wear fancy suits. They come across confident and trustworthy. And by some definitions, they look holy. But you're not holy just because you look the part. You're not holy just because you dress a certain way, walk a certain way, talk a certain way. Holiness is not about looking the part. Holiness is not about doing religious activities. Just because you own a Bible and go to church on Sundays does not qualify you as a holy person. It might make you moral. It might make you religious. But it does not make you, by God's definition, holy. Now, there are a lot of unholy religious people in the world who do a lot of things that are religious, who are very devout, perhaps more devout than you and I, yet they are not holy. Holiness is not about doing religious things, but it's also, holiness is not about being dull and boring. You know, to be a holy person does not mean you can't tell jokes or enjoy life. It doesn't mean you can't smile once in a while. This is why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or another way of translating that is happy are the holy. This is why a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis said, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, he will find it irresistible. There's nothing dull about pursuing a life of holiness. You see, holiness is about reflecting the beauty of our God. It's about reflecting the beauty of our God in our thought life, in our activities, in, in, our, in our heart, in our emotions. It's reflecting his beauty in a pervasive way. And I think this is what Peter's driving at in this text, is reflecting the beauty of God, being holy as he is holy. But if we're going to do that, I just want to put five challenges before you that can help you pursue this and find this joy, find this happiness. Discover how you as individuals and how you as a church can become a holy people, recognizing that this community's greatest need is your personal Holiness. Well, these five challenges real quick, I'll give you the first one. If you and I are going to pursue holiness, if we're going to grow towards reflecting the beauty of God, you and I must embrace the power of our new identity. That's probably my favorite point in this whole passage of embracing the power of our new identity. If you just look at how verse 13 begins, circle that word, therefore, because that is a huge word. I love this word. The word therefore, you know, speaks to logical results. It's one of those words that tells us to look backwards before moving forwards. It speaks to logical results. Like I was running late this morning. Well, let me put it this way. The 520 bridge was closed. Therefore, I was late this morning. So I came in kind of frazzled. I looked a little hairy and trying to get my composure and get my bearings in a new 
play. See, therefore, it speaks to logical results, telling us to look backwards before moving forwards. You see, this word, this word anchors our pursuit of holiness in the reality of our new identity. Because earlier in First Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, this is what Peter says. He lays out the greatness of our salvation. He reminds his readers of all that God has done to rescue them and to redeem them and to bring them into salvation. So in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So everything that Peter says in verses 13 through 21 hinges on what's come before. See, I'm not, tell, I'm not just kind of dropping you off in the middle of nowhere and saying pursue holiness. I'm encouraging you to anchor yourself in your identity as a gospel-believing person because that identity will fuel and empower your pursuit of holiness. See, too many times when the topic of holiness comes up, we, we are just lambasted with all these rules and regulations, these things that we have to do. And we're just told, do this, don't do that, because that's what holiness is. And oftentimes these kinds of talks are given without being anchored in a gospel-centered and a gospel-rooted framework. You see, the gospel isn't just the message you and I believe to become Christians. It's not just the message we believe to be redeemed. The gospel is what we are anchored in. It's what we're rooted in. The gospel gives us a new identity, and it helps us aspire and to live out a new reality. So we want to embrace the power of who we are as people who have been born again. People who have been changed by the gospel. There was a guy in the 5th century by the name of Augustine and perhaps one of the most influential thinkers in Christendom uh, to date still. I mean, he was a very powerful figure. But before Augustine became a Christian, he was kind of the Charlie Sheen of his culture. He was a wild guy. He was a lust ball. He, he was, he was, yeah, he, he was a wild person before the day he heard the voice say, take up and read, take up and read. And he pulled up in a Bible and turned open to Romans and he began to read uh, the gospel and his life was changed. And God caused him to be born again. Well, not long after that moment, he was walking down the street and thinking about what has just happened in his life. And as he was doing so, a woman saw him coming, one of his former hookups, a lady that he knew intimately. And, and she saw Augustine and she begins to Call out his name, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And she began to run after him. And Augustine looked up and saw who it was. And he said, yes, but it is not I. Excuse me. Yes, but it is not I. You see, he was embracing a new identity. The gospel had given him a new framework. And he wasn't going to continue the path that he was walking down before believing the gospel. So he looks at this woman and says, yes, but it is not I. It is not I. I'm a new person. I have been given a new life. And so he turned and he actually ran from this woman. So not only do we embrace the power of our new identity, we've also got to fight for holiness aggressively. We have to fight for this aggressively. We embrace our new identity, then we fight aggressively. And so like Augustine, when temptation arises, when things from our past creep up, we turn and we run I mean, this is what Peter's getting at right after verse. He says, therefore, he says, now prepare your minds for action and be sober minded. These are action oriented words. Now, I love that phrase, prepare your minds for action. Some older translations of the Bible 
they translate that in a way that says, um, gird up your loins, right? And so you read some of these older translations, and you're like, what in the world does gird up your loins mean? Well, the image there is pretty powerful, because back in the day, people wore long, flowing robes, the polar opposite of today's skinny jeans. I mean, the exact opposite kind of culture. And so they wore these long flowing robes and the robes just kind of dangled loosely to the ground, which was, you know, good for a casual stroll. You could walk around pretty well in that way. But if there ever came a moment when you needed to move more aggressively, move more actively before you, you know, you had to, you know, show some aggression, men would gird up their loins, meaning they would take the robes and they would wrap it up around their legs and they would tie it real tight and just kind of get the excess fabric in a just wrapped around their legs so they could move more freely, move more aggressively. And so this is kind of a, a colloquial expression. It's, it's equivalent today when we say, you know, it's time to get our hands dirty. Or if you're playing basketball, it's time to lace them up. Or you're playing football, all right, let's strap them on. That's the idea here. That's the image here. You could imagine Matt Flynn stepping into the huddle with the Seattle Seahawks and saying, okay, guys, let's gird up our loins, right? <laughs> Really get them going, intimidating the other team. What are they talking about? That's the idea here. It's get ready for action. We have to be aggressive in our pursuit of holiness. But not only does he say prepare our minds, he also says to be sober-minded. Now, living in Fremont, we, my wife and I live right around the corner from one of the most happening bar scenes in Seattle. I mean, there's several bars right around the corner. It's every Friday night, Saturday night. We're awoken in the middle of the night by, uh, well, drunks outside just, you know, doing their thing, screaming, hollering, kicking trash cans, you know, messing with cars, doing all kinds of things like that. And you know as well as I do that people who get drunk, they don't get drunk accidentally, you know. It happens on purpose. They take a drink. They, they go into the store. They buy the drink. They open the drink. They turn it down. One's not enough, so they grab another one, they turn that one down, then they turn a third and a fourth and a fifth, and eventually the alcohol begins to take over their bodies, and it affects how they live. It affects how they think. Like the guy who I saw confusing a Coke machine for an ATM, trying to get money out of this thing, it affects how they talk. You know, their tongues swell up and get too big for their mouths, so they start slobbering all over the cell and they can't talk very well. It, affects how they walk, like the guy I witnessed getting clipped by a cab because he just kind of fell over into the street at the wrong time. It, it affects us, or alcohol, it's intoxication. And so sin, ultimately, the flip side of what Peter's getting at, sin affects our lives the way alcohol affects our bodies. It takes over. It turns us into fools. We lose control. Which is why Peter's saying, look, don't be naive. Be sober-minded. Pursue holiness aggressively. Be alert. Be ready for action. Do not stumble through life like a drunk. Instead, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded and pursue holiness aggressively. It's not just going to happen. You don't grow in holiness by accident. You grow in holiness intentionally. That's why the pursuit of holiness, with this whole idea of being aggressive, this is why this pursuit is very much a fight. It is a fight in our lives. This is why over in chapter 2, verse 11, if you just turn over to that chapter, you'll see Peter using this kind of language, saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Then in chapter 5, we are told that we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. And you know as well as I do, if you're passive in a fight, you're going to be destroyed. This is why my uncle always told me, when you feel threatened, strike first. You know, If you're in a fight, you want to make sure you get the first lick. Well, the same thing when it comes to pursuing holiness. You have to be aggressive. If you sit back on your heels, sin will devour you. But if you begin to fight for holiness aggressively, begin to do things differently, it will help you grow. It will help you advance in this whole deal. This is why Jesus used this kind of language in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your left hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's aggressive language. He's saying don't be passive in this thing. Fight for holiness aggressively. It's very much like my friend Sam, who was my roommate in college, who struggled with, with issues revolving the Internet. So he would oftentimes find himself caught up with his lust and look and pursue images online that were unholy, that were ungodly, that affected his communion with Christ and stole his joy. One day he kind of hit rock bottom and he decided to start fighting. He decided he couldn't be passive in this pursuit of holiness anymore. And so he comes busting out of his room and he entered the living room where I was sitting watching TV. And in his hand, as before, we had all this wireless stuff. And he had a DSL cord that he had pl- that he'd plug into the wall to get his Internet connection. And he, come, he walked in. And Sam was from New Orleans, so he, always, he grew up carrying a knife in his boot. So he always had a knife ready and willing for whatever comes up. And in this case, it was you know, a fight for holiness. And so he walks in, he grabs the knife, he jerks it out of his boot, takes the cord and just cuts it in half, throws it on the ground, says, I'm done. In that moment, he was preparing his mind for action. He was girding up his loins. He was being sober-minded, fighting for holiness aggressively. Friends, if you are passive in your pursuit of holiness, it will destroy you. You will lose. So you have to take steps. You have to surround yourself in community of people who can hold you accountable, people you can talk to, people you can lean on. You have to do this thing together, and you have to do this thing aggressively. So we want to fight for holiness aggressively. Now, there are some who understand holiness in a way that I do not think is very biblical. I do not think is very Jesus honoring. They're the type of personality and the type of Christian who thinks that once you become a Christian, then there's really no need to fight for holiness because you shouldn't be struggling. You shouldn't. Eventually, you'll just kind of grow to a point where you do not struggle with sin anymore. And so you got a lot of people sitting back on their heels waiting for you know, holiness to be spiritually downloaded onto the mainframe of their character. But it's not how Peter talks about holiness in this text. And I would encourage you not to think about holiness in that way as well. This is why I'm not concerned with Christians who struggle with sin. If you have a struggle in your life, if you're fighting something, if you were convicted over things, if you were broken, I'm not concerned about that struggle. I'm concerned about Christians who don't have a struggle. I'm concerned about those who do not have a fight going on in their lives. This is why J.C. Ryle said what he said, the believer is a soldier and there is no holiness without warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. So if you're wondering, you know, how can I be a Christian and still struggle with some of these things in my life? I would encourage you just by the fact that you're asking that question, that's a good sign. Because when the Son of God, when you are born again, when the gospel touches down in your life, yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace in the sense that he brings peace to our lives, but understand that Jesus is also the Lord of War. 
And so when he enters our lives, he also launches a conflict. He sets off a war. And so now you have a battle going on within you. You have a fight taking place in your heart. Jesus is there and he's waging war against the sin in your life. And you are to join him on the battlefield. Fighting for sin. Fighting for holiness aggressively. But number three, and I'll move a little bit faster, need to fulfill our calling obediently. If we're going to pursue holiness, we need to fulfill our high calling obediently. Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So we have a calling to pursue holiness. That's, that's a privilege. That, that's an incredible privilege that we have. And if you're wondering, well, what does holiness look like? What's the standard? Well, the standard is God. That's why in our pursuit of holiness, we do not gauge our growth by looking to the right or looking to the left. You know, we do not gauge our growth in holiness by looking at one another. Because to be honest with you, we don't set the bar very high. If that were the case, we would probably all stop, grow, stop growing right now. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with so-and-so, or I'm right there with her. But our standard, according to Peter, is God. So we're not satisfied by living a degree of holiness that's comparable to those around us because our standard is ultimately the God who has called us. So we weren't aspiring to this new life that he's calling us to. So you flip over to chapter 2, verse 9, and, and God kind of uses this powerful image when he talks about this calling. He says God's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's reminding us that the pursuit of holiness is no less than the pursuit of God. This is why we want to pursue it, because the closer we get to God, the more holy we become. We are walking in his marvelous light. And so Peter's reminding his readers, look, now that you believe the gospel, now that you are uh, an exile and a sojourner traveling through this world, you, you do not belong in darkness. You do not belong in sin. You do not belong in the stuff that dishonors Jesus and made his death on the cross necessary. You do not belong there. You now belong with God. Enjoy his presence, pursue him, commune with him, worship him, walk in his marvelous light. Now, when I was a kid, I used to fall asleep in church all the time. When I was seven years old, I could not stay awake to save my life. And that's a problem because my dad was the one doing the thing that I'm doing now. And so anytime I would fall asleep in church, he knew it. And so he told me on more than one occasion, look, Andrew, do not fall asleep in church. You, you need to stay awake and pay attention didn't work. And so I would fall asleep, usually around, you know, five minutes into his talk and to his messages, I would crawl up on the pew and I would just drift off to dreamland. And usually I would wake up before the invitation. You know, the music would start playing and, and people would start standing up. And that would usually jolt me and wake me up. But one particular night, I was apparently in a very deep sleep because I not only slept through the sermon, I slept through the invitation and the dismissal. People were leaving the church building and I was still asleep on the pew in the front row. It was one of those situations where my mom, my mom thought it was my dad, my dad thought it was my mom, and I eventually woke up in a pitch black sanctuary. <laughs> everybody was gone, everybody had left, and I was there all by myself, waking up, wondering what in the world is going on. I'm a seven-year-old kid, so I'm afraid of the dark. I'm struggling, and I don't know if you've ever been in a church building at nighttime, but it's a, it can be a scary place to be, especially when all the lights are turned off. So I woke up, and I just I start to freak out. My eyes began to swell with tears, and I began to uh, tremble in my seat. And right before I'm about to lose it, I see a hallway light turn on in the 
distance, and I hear my, some person walking um, in my direction, and eventually my dad kind of peeked his head around the corner, and he said my name. He said, Andrew, where are you? Andrew, where are you? And the sound of his voice, you know, at first I was like, well, I don't want to go there because he told me not to fall asleep in church. <laughs> and so I was tempted just to kind of shrink back underneath the pew, but then I remembered the character of my dad. I remembered that my dad loved me. I remember how my dad has taken care of me for all of my life. I remember how he used to, you know, help me whenever he was teaching me to ride my bike and I would fall and he would pick me back on and push me along the way a little bit further. I began to think about the character of my dad. And eventually I got enough courage to step out of the pew and to make my way towards him. And I stepped out of the darkness and I walked into the presence of my dad. See, I did not belong in the sanctuary. I belonged with my dad. And friends, you do not belong in a life of darkness and sin. You belong in the presence of your heavenly Father. But some of you right now are tempted not to pursue holiness, not to step out into God's marvelous light because you do not understand His character. You're afraid of Him. You're wondering, well, if I come to Him, is He going to receive me? Is He going to treat me with grace and mercy and forgiveness? Is He going to punish me for the things that I've done? Is He going to just let me have it? No, If you understand the gospel, then you understand that you can step out of the darkness of sin and you can walk into God's marvelous light. He will receive you. He will embrace you. And He will work with you in your pursuit of holiness. And as you draw near to God in your pursuit of God, you will find yourself reflecting His beauty all the more. And so we want to pursue our high calling obediently. We want to step out of the darkness and step into our relationship God and number four it tells us now this may sound counterintuitive when you hear number four when if we're going to pursue holiness it means also we must live before God reverently yes we pursue God we step out and we're embraced by him we're loved by him but at the same time we live before him reverently this is why in verse 17 says that God is our father but it also says that he is an impartial judge It says that he's our father, but he's also the impartial judge of the universe and as such we are to conduct ourselves with that little word fear Now, that might confuse you, given what I just said about stepping boldly out into the light. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Automatically, perhaps, images are popping up into your minds of all the things that you're afraid of, all the things that you want to distance yourself from. You know, like me, it's clowns and Miley Cyrus. I want to get as far away from those things as possible. The object of my fear, you know, cause they, they unsettle me. And so I want to flee. Well, don't put God in the category of Miley Cyrus and clowns. Fearing God does not mean to be afraid of him. It does not mean that we take our eyes off of Romans chapter 8 verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not fear God in the sense that we, as Christians, in the sense that we think he's going to punish us or condemn us when we find ourselves asleep in a dark sanctuary after dad told us not to sleep during church. It's not that kind of picture. It's not that image. You see, fear here is about living with a sense of reverence, living with a sense of respect, living with a sense of awe. It's similar to the feeling you get as you approach the brink of the Grand Canyon. Right? Drawn to its beauty, you want to get as close to the precipice as possible. But with every step you take, the slower you begin to walk because you're not approaching a ditch. You're approaching a canyon. 
That's the idea here. Press into God. Pursue God. Step out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. Do it in response to His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. But also understand that you are approaching the holy God of the universe who is the impartial judge who sees everything that's going on in your life, around your life, all over the universe. And so you think about living reverently before God and you're reminded that this God is really big, this God is really holy, this God is an impartial judge, which means he must see everything. And so living before him reverently means to, you know, quite simply to live before his eyes. Understand that God's eyes are always upon you. And don't let that, you know, cause you to be afraid. Let that cause you to be awestruck. Respectful, understanding that God is everywhere and that God sees everything. I cannot help but think of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Perhaps you're familiar with this story. You know that Joseph hit some bad situations in his life, eventually was sold by his brothers to an Egyptian slavery, and he found himself as a servant in, in the Pharaoh's kingdom. And one day while he's serving the Pharaoh and doing things that fulfilling his responsibilities, he met a woman named Potiphar's wife, right? Potiphar's wife would come to him over and over and over again and entice him, tempt him into, uh, you know, she wanted Joseph. She thought he was cute. She thought he was talented. And so she wanted to, yeah, so she would, (laughs) excuse me, She, she tempted Joseph every single day. Now, understand that Joseph is far from home. Nobody knows him in Egypt. His brothers aren't there. His dad isn't there. He could have hooked up with Potiphar's wife and nobody would have ever known. But the thing about Joseph is that he was a man who lived reverently before God. He was a man who knew that, yes, he's far from home, but his God is still with him. And so he feared too God too much to sin against him, even if no one around him would have ever known about it. You know, it's easy to pursue holiness in a room like this. It's easy to pursue holiness when we're surrounded by other believers. But what do you do in those hidden moments? What do you do in those moments when no one else is around and your action would never be found out by any other person? What do you do then? Well, I would encourage you to do the same thing Joseph did. How was he able to resist Potiphar's wife's temptation? Well... It says, if you just kind of read through that narrative and you look at that scene, it says over and over and over again that the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. He resisted temptation because he knew God was with him. And he knew God was watching him. It doesn't matter if people see what you do. What matters is that God sees what you do. And so living with a sense of reverence understands that, respects that. And so we live with a sense of reverence before God. But not only do we need that in order to pursue holiness. Fifth and finally, if we're going to be successful, if we're going to make progress in reflecting the beauty of our God and and our thoughts and our motives and our deeds in every moment of every day, if we're going to do that, friends, we must learn how to be gripped by the gospel daily. We must be gripped by the gospel daily. Tonight's passage ends with Peter laying out the gospel. You know, he started with the gospel up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. But then towards the end of the passage, he comes back to the gospel. He can't get away from it. See, this, is, um, this isn't how we tend to approach the Christian life, is it? 
You know, the gospel is that which, you know, brings us into salvation. The gospel is that which brings us into a relationship with God. And so it's kind of the front door. But once we enter into relationships, once we're saved, right, we then kind of move on to other things. We, we enter into the world of discipleship, spiritual disciplines, sanctification, the pursuit of holiness. And so we begin to step out into these other arenas of the Christian life and we tend to do so by in in a way that detaches ourselves from the gospel. And so the gospel has unwittingly become another spoke in the wheel of the Christian life. And we've forgotten that the gospel is actually the hub of the Christian life. It holds everything together. And the only way you and I are going to progress in holiness, the only way we're going to pursue The holiness that is called for in this passage is if we are anchored, rooted in the gospel, recognizing that the gospel is the hub of the Christian life. It's not just another spoke. This is why Peter comes back to it and he thinks about the gospel. He talks about holiness and that leads him to reflect upon Jesus. And he's gripped by the gospel once again. And so he thinks about the price of his redemption in verse 19. He talks about the precious blood of Christ. He he thinks about how Jesus died on the cross and how his blood was shed. And when his blood was shed, that wasn't just normal blood. It was holy blood. For Jesus was a spotless lamb without blemish. Lived a life of perfect obedience. Unhindered holiness. Jesus lived that life. The life you and I could not live. And then he went to the cross and he shed his blood to die the death you and I should have died. But we also know that when Jesus died, he did not stay dead. But because his blood was holy, God was pleased with his sacrifice. And so not only did he die on the cross, three days later he rose from the grave. And in that moment, God put his stamp, God the Father put his stamp of approval on God the Son's death, saying, yes, this is the way to salvation. This is the way of redemption. This is what my people's life is going to center around, be anchored in. It is the life, death, and resurrection of the God-man Jesus Christ. And so he thinks about the price of the redemption. And then he he remembers the purpose of his redemption. He says, Jesus did this to save me, yes, from sin, but also to save me from futility. This is what he says in verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 18. He says, we've been ransomed from the futile ways. Foolish ways. Layman's translation, stupid ways, right? We've been redeemed from a stupid life. And have been brought into a holy life, a life that pleases God, a life that is anchored in the gospel. And so he begins to reflect and to remember everything that Jesus has done. He can't can't talk about holiness without going there. And you and I should never talk or think about holiness without going there as well. Which is why we must be gripped by the gospel daily. How often do you think about the gospel? Some of you have known Jesus for many, many years. But how often do you call to mind consciously the life that he lived, the death that he died, and the resurrection he accomplished? And when you do call that to mind, what does that do to your heart? How does that affect you? Does that inspire you towards holiness? It should. This is why when it comes to pursuit of holiness, if you and I are being gripped by the gospel, if we believe this message, if the gospel is the hub of our lives, if the gospel is the hub of our community, when that happens, the pursuit of holiness is not an option for us. 
the pursuit of holiness becomes desirable to us. Now, I struggle with Christians when you talk about the life that we should live as followers of Jesus. When you talk about the pursuit of holiness, I, I worry about those who call themselves Christians, but they talk about holiness as if it's just an option. It's an option on the table. You can take it or leave it. We're saved by grace, right? And oftentimes they talk about holiness as if it's a poor option. You know, Personal holiness is the anchovies of the Christian life. It's available But who really wants it? Nobody really likes that kind of stuff. Who wants to live a holy life? And to be honest with you, people who talk that way or think that way may be exposing the fact that they've never tasted the gospel in the first place. You see, the gospel doesn't just make the pursuit of holiness an option. It makes it a desire. I'll give you an example. I grew up most of my life hating cheesecake. You know, as a kid, my parents would would give me um, would, we'd have dessert options after you know meals during the week and that kind of thing. And, and anytime cheesecake was an option, I would just disengage. I had no interest in cheesecake. I wanted something with you know chocolate chips. I wanted cookies. I wanted ice cream. I wanted fudge brownies. I wanted something along those lines. And so anytime cheesecake was offered as a dessert option, I would turn it away. I had no desire for it. No interest. In it. Well, I got a little bit older, and back in 2001, I was traveling the country with a group of college students doing camps. This particular summer was in the New England area, and, and all summer long, there was a guy that told me about a little place I'd never heard of called the Cheesecake Factory. And he told me about the Cheesecake Factory, and he explained this place to me and said it was just an amazing, you've got to go here and you've got to try their cheesecake. And all summer long, I said, dude, that's not my thing. I'm not into that. I have no desire, no no, I'm not interested in the Cheesecake Factory, but he just continued to just ham it up and tell me all about it. And eventually, towards the end of the summer, he bugged me enough to where I said, yes, okay, I'll go with you to Cheesecake Factory. So we found ourselves in Baltimore, Maryland, and there was a Cheesecake Factory right around the corner from my hotel. And so we decided to go and try the cheesecake. So I went with him, and we entered the restaurant. We took our seat at the table, and the waitress came by and handed us a menu and about the size of an ESP in the magazine, just a huge menu with all kinds of dinner options. I'm a pretty indecisive guy, and so I had a hard time just getting through that. And I'm flipping the pages trying to figure out what, uh, what to choose just for dinner, and eventually made my decision and thought, okay, well, the hard part's gone. But then she brought me the dessert menu, and the dessert menu was just as big, it seemed, as the dinner menu. I mean, there were so many. There were more options of cheesecake than Baskin-Robbins has of ice cream. I mean, just multiple, all kinds of Flavors. I just kind of panned down the page and I came across something called the chocolate chip cookie dough cheesecake. Now, that's something I could wrap my mind around, right? If I'm going to try cheesecake, that's what I'm going to try. That's what I'm going after. So I put in an order for chocolate chip cookie dough cheesecake. The waitress went in and she put in my order. A few minutes later, she brought it back. And when she brought my slice to me, she didn't just bring me a paper thin slice of cheesecake. She brought me a wedge of cheesecake. I mean... Something you could put underneath the tire of a trailer to keep it from rolling back down the hill. And it was a big slice of cheesecake. And she put it before me. My eyes grew wide and I took up my fork. And I didn't even have to apply pressure to this thing. I just kind of set it on the cheesecake and the fork just kind of fell through it. And I took that first bite and I, I put that cheesecake on my tongue. And in that moment, something happened to me. 
There was a party in my mouth and nobody else was invited. It, it, it's silky smooth texture and subtly sweet flavor just danced delightfully on my tongue. and It just changed my appetite. I left the Cheesecake Factory a changed man. I tasted and experienced the goodness of the Cheesecake Factory. And I left there with a new desire, new appetite. And all of a sudden, I became the biggest advocate for the Cheesecake Factory you will ever meet. But when it comes to pursuit of holiness, when you and I taste and see that the Lord is good, when we taste and see the beauty of God in the gospel, when we experience it change our hearts, when we see it for what it is, and when we are gripped by it, when that happens, an appetite awakens A new desire is stimulated. And it's a desire for holiness. It's a desire to live a new life, to approach this thing differently. See, the gospel doesn't just make this pursuit of holiness optional. It actually makes it desirable. And so if you're going to pursue holiness, this is where you have to come. You have to start with the gospel and you have to end with the gospel. And everything else in between then begins to make sense. The embracing of your new identity, the fighting against sin aggressively, the obeying your high calling obediently, the living before God reverently. All of that happens when you are gripped by the gospel. And so my prayer for you as a people and as a church is that that would happen, that that desire would be, would be fanned into flame, that you would pursue holiness. And as you do so, you'll discover that the people around you, they don't necessarily need your skills. They don't need your talents. They need your life. They need to see people who are gripped by the gospel and who are living out the beauty of the gospel on a day-to-day basis, at work, on weekends, everything. When you do that, I think that's when your influence begins to expand. I think that's when churches begin to grow. If you'd bow your heads, I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then we're going to move on for the rest of our time. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. I thank you for the privilege we have to not only be ransomed by your gospel, but also to be transformed by it. And I ask that you would give us grace to be the kinds of people who pursue holiness. I pray, Lord, that holiness would grow in this room. I pray that holiness would grow um, in our hearts and our minds and, Lord, what we do with our hands and our lives, God, that we would pursue holiness. I pray that by your grace that would happen. And I ask that all in Jesus' name.